When we lived in Ohio, I received a letter inviting pastors to a meet and greet with one of the candidates for Chief Justice of the Ohio Supreme Court. I wanted to be a responsible, informed voter, so I RSVP'd. There were hundreds, maybe over a thousand pastors in the Warren-Youngstown area who probably received the same letter I received. I was the only one who attended the event. Plenty of business people, plenty of lawyers, newspaper reporters, one pastor. I went expecting to learn the candidate's views on the law, but the candidate wasn't there to share his views. As soon as his campaign staff learned that the pastor, the only pastor, had arrived, they took me and introduced me to him. And as I shook his hand, someone said, look over here, a bulb flashed. The next day, the newspaper had a picture of Pastor Shane Looper of Warren Westside Lions Church shaking hands with the candidate for chief justice. Now, the candidate who was elected was polite, he stopped to talk to me for a minute, and realistically, maybe 15 seconds, I'm not sure. Told me he was glad to meet me, and then he moved on to rub elbows with some of the other folks. I thought I was at that meeting for one reason, but I had been invited for a different reason. I thought the plot of the story was interested voters gathered to hear candidates' views. But I wasn't on the same page with everyone else. I wasn't even in the same book with everyone else. I really didn't know why I was there. I thought I did, but I was wrong. Someone was telling me recently that he went to the jail to visit an inmate, walked in the front door, I don't know if you've ever been there or not, but walked in the front door, found himself in this bare, block-walled, institutional-looking room, and stood there wondering what he was supposed to do. There was no one there, just empty. There's a metal kind of box plate on the wall with a button on it. Was he supposed to push the button? He did, but at first no one responded. I'm sure he wondered if he'd gone to the right place, wondered if anybody was going to answer, if somebody was going to come out and say, what are you doing here? We've all been in situations where we didn't know what was expected of us. We started a new school and, and we're unsure of where we're supposed to go. We don't know where homeroom is, we don't know who to talk to, and we're afraid we're going to look stupid. Or we attend a meeting at a venue we've never been to before, and we don't know what door we're supposed to enter. I once went into the back entrance of the Art Institute in Chicago. It wasn't a public entrance, and people looked at me and said, who are you and what do you want? I think the experience of the Christian life is a lot like that for some people, for many people. They become Christians, like a friend of mine did, but don't know what they're supposed to be doing because they don't know why they're here. My friend told me, I thought, okay, in 40 years I'll die and go to heaven, but what am I supposed to do until then? Today we're beginning a series titled Down to Earth, which is about how to live for heaven while you're here on earth. Now, down to earth sounds practical, and I mean this to be practical. But you can't be practical without knowing why you're here. For example, imagine when I went to meet the Supreme Court candidate, 
I had said to someone on his staff, hey, I have a, a real practical question for you. I want to get a seat right up front for the judge's speech and for the Q&A time. So can you tell me where I should go? Now, that'd be a practical question, wouldn't it? But the guy would not have been able to answer it in a way that would have satisfied me or him because I thought I was in one kind of story and he thought I was in another. And it turns out he was right and I was wrong. The same kind of thing can happen in the Christian life. We want to know the how before we've established the why. We want something practical. And by that we mean something that will make our lives easier and more secure. But what if the story we're in isn't about ease and security? If that's the case, the advice that we're asking for might not be the advice that we need to hear. Imagine you work in the front office of a large business, and some of you probably do, a business that employs, say, engineers and, and sales staff and machine operators and packers and, and transportation professionals. One day, a guy you've never seen before, mid-30s, wearing jeans and a trendy shirt, sticks his head into your door and says, hi, they, um, they told me that you would tell me where I'm supposed to go. What would, you, what would you say to him? Well, that would depend, wouldn't it? If he was a computer guy, you'd send him to the server room. If he was an engineer, you'd tell him where the engineering department was. You'd send a machine operator to the plant, a truck driver to the loading dock, and you'd smile at the pizza delivery guy if you'd left your sack lunch on the table when you rushed off to work, and you'd tell him he'd come to the right place, right? One problem is that we think we want practical help to live the Christian life fruitfully when all we really want is divine help to live our own lives successfully. That's a problem because this may come to a, as a shock to you, but God is not interested in helping us live a successful life by society's standards. He's interested in helping us live a joyful, productive life by kingdom standards. We want a life that's rich enough in material goods that we don't need to depend on anyone. God wants us to have a life rich enough in faith that we can depend on him for everything. So this is the hard part, in a way, the hardest sermon of this whole series. And we need to face it right here at the beginning. Some people don't know what kind of life God is willing to help them live. And some people wouldn't be interested if they did. It's hard for us to accept the idea that success as defined by our culture is not success as defined by our God. What is down to earth in the one scenario is totally impractical in the other. Until we face that, we will think that God's way is impractical and otherworldly, maybe too religious. I'm not that religious. And we'll not follow it. See, if we insist on the storyline that our culture is telling, we will fail in the Christian life and we won't even know why. When it comes to practicality, knowing precedes doing. How doesn't make sense until we know why. Why did God put us here? Why did he leave us here? After we came to faith, instead of just taking us straight to glory, 
Why are we in this world, in this church? Why precedes how? So let me put it bluntly. We are not here to be like everyone else. We are not here to desire what everyone else desires or have what everyone else has. We're kind of like the National Guard, like National Guard troops sent to the scene of a riot where everyone's breaking windows and looting stores and attacking people that belong to other ethnicities. They weren't sent there to do what everyone else was doing. And we weren't sent here to do what everyone else is doing. God didn't place us here in this cosmic riot where people prey on each other and just amass possessions and to misquote the Lord's Prayer, try to have their will done on earth as it's done in their own minds. He didn't place us here to do what everyone else is doing. We're here to serve God's purpose. Say that aloud right now. I'm here to serve God's purpose. I'm here to serve God's purpose. Paul tells the Corinthians that Christians should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. He tells the Ephesians, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. He tells the Colossians, you used to walk in these ways. You were like everyone else back then in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. So the question, the answer to the question why, stated negatively is, you are not here to be like everyone else. You're not here to look like everyone else or to have what everyone else has. If if your life is indistinguishable from your non-Christian neighbors, something isn't right. That's not the way it's supposed to be. The answer to why stated positively is that we are here to stand out, to be different. Not for the sake of being different, but for the sake of God and his purpose. So this is how Jesus put it, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, and the Greek there is really interesting, it's something like if the salt is made stupid. If the salt, it, we get that, our word moronic from the word that's used in this passage. If the salt is made stupid, if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, God's put you on a stand. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Salt is good because it makes food better, makes it taste better and last longer. You know, sometimes we hear someone described as the salt of the earth, by which the person means that he or she is a down-home, decent kind of a person. That is not what Jesus had in mind when he coined that phrase. Jesus' people are the salt of the earth because they are different from their surroundings. They stand out. They make things around them and people around them better. 
There are five words in verse 13 that ought to alarm us. They ought to startle us. No longer good for anything. If salt ceases to be distinct from its surroundings, say scrambled eggs or a steak, it's no longer good. It's not good for anything. It's useless. It's worthless except for people to walk on. If we, the salt of the earth, cease to be distinct from our surroundings, say from the people in our workplace, our neighbors, our non-Christian family members, then we're not good for anything. We're not good for them, and we're not good for God, at least as regards his purpose. God didn't put us here to be like everyone else. Jesus also says his people are the light of the world. If light wasn't distinct from darkness, what good would it be? It wouldn't be good for anything. Light stands out. Scientists tell us on a dark night, the human eye can see a candle flame from about 1.6 miles away. Some people have said, theoretically, if, if you were in absolute darkness and on a flat plane, you could see that candle flame from more than 30 miles away. Jesus says that people don't light a lamp in order to hide it. They light it to give themselves and other people perspective, to help them make decisions, to safely guide them. The point he's making is that God did not light you, Christian, by giving you eternal life so that you would blend into the darkness. He intends you to be different, to shine. If you're not different, you're not shining. So let's pause for a moment and ask ourselves a question that requires a thoughtful answer. Am I different? Now your spouse or your brother or sister is saying, <laughs> like there's ever any doubt about that. But seriously, are you different from people at work? The people you work with? At school? In your golf league or your Facebook group? Has it dawned on your neighbors and your friends that you're not like them? They might not understand why you're different. They'll probably misinterpret it. They might attribute it to your politics or your genetics or even your religion. He's different because he's religious rather than to Jesus. But if they don't even notice that you're different, something's wrong. The salt of the earth life of a Jesus follower will not be like everyone else's lives. All right. We've talked about the fact that we ought to be different, not about what makes us different. Now, the difference might show up in our speech. Just for example, you know, I've worked in a factory. I know how people talk in factories. If you talk differently, people notice. It might show up in our speech or the way we dress or in the way we spend our time or our money. But we don't change those things to be different. Those things change because we are different. If the changes are merely external, then we've only managed to become legalists and maybe hypocrites. What we do, the way we speak, dress, spend time, money, is different from what other people do because we are different. 
Where lies the difference? Well, we're light, we're salt. Those are metaphors, aren't they? So let's try to get behind the metaphors. We're different because God has changed us. And he is changing us on the inside. We were once like everyone else. That's Colossians chapter 3. That's 1 Peter chapter 2. We were once like everyone else, but then God did something to us. He gave us a new and different kind of life. His kind, what the Bible calls eternal life, and it is growing in us. Twelve times in the New Testament we find the Greek word zoiapoieo. Zoiapoieo means to make alive, as in, in Ephesians 2, 5. It's one of those twelve times. Because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. That is what God did that changed us and is changing us. He made us alive in a way that we weren't alive before. We're not different because of how we look on the outside, though even that can begin to change. We're different because of what happened to us on the inside. God gave us life eternal life. He gave us his spirit and made our spirits alive. That makes us different from the people around us. Why did he do this? So we're getting back to that why question. Why precedes how? You can answer that in a number of ways. You can answer it in terms of cause. Well, he did this because he loves us. That's true. You could say, you could answer that in terms of result so that we could become God's children. That's 1 John chapter 3. That's true. Or you could say, so that we can get to heaven. The Bible doesn't put it that way exactly, but I think it's true. Or you could say, so that we will do good works that God prepared beforehand. That's Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. Or, so that people may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That's St. Peter. Look at how Jesus puts it in Matthew 5.16. In the same way, let your light shine before men. That, word signifying result, they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Why are you here? To cause people to glorify God. To see that he exists, that he's good. You are an advertisement for God and his kingdom. You are persuasion. You convince people to leave their old life the cosmic riot where people prey on each other and try to get their will done on earth and come over to God's side, join his kingdom and do his will. You know, there's plenty of advertising in this world contrived by God's enemy to lead people to think that God is not good. There's the best-selling book by the late Christopher Hitchens, God is Not Great. And there are scores of other books just like it. The internet is awash with attack ads against God. And, and so is the media. Every time I write an article about God's existence, I get people attacking me over it and telling me how terrible God is. But you are a positive ad for God. That's one reason why you're here, to persuade people, not by your words primarily, but by your life, your eternal life, to persuade them that God is good and that they should come over to his side people in your family, people in your workplace. Psalm 115 that we 
saw this morning, uh, says, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. <clears throat> you know, the devil would have people believe that what pleases God is to condemn, to cause pain, to make them go without, to push them around and, and remind them how insignificant they are. But the psalmist knew better. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. And what pleases him is people who thrive, people who love, people who join him in making the world right again. Your life on earth is intended to help people see that and glorify your Father in heaven. As the Westminster Confession summed it up, the true end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. How can your life, remember why you're here, persuade people to bring their life to God and join his kingdom? Well, for one thing, by your good deeds, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. St. Paul says that God has prepared those good deeds in advance for us to find and to do, literally for us to walk in, discovering them as we go. Good deeds are part of God's advertising campaign. He wants people to see that he's good and his way is best. He wants them to come to him by their own choice now rather than flee from him later when his kingdom arrives. And you have a role in that. But don't just do whatever good deeds you can think of so that people will notice you. Our good deeds grow out of the life God has placed in us and the ongoing relationship he has with us. The good deeds grow naturally like fruit grows from the life within us, from the person we're becoming. Last Sunday, I think it was last Sunday, Jeanette Delasky told me that she had planted Polish tomato seeds. And I thought she was making a joke. <laughs> and so I was waiting for the punchline, you know? What do you get when you plant a Polish tomato seed? I don't know, kielbasa? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but she wasn't joking. You know, she said, no, I'm not joking. She, she planted Polish tomato seeds thinking they would grow into Polish tomatoes. And what did God think we would grow into when he planted his own life in us? People who look like, talk like, think like, forgive like, are like Jesus. Talk about an advertising campaign for the kingdom of God. Now, here's the point you mustn't forget as we start this series. You are not here to be like everyone else. We, we talk to kids about peer pressure, but man, it doesn't stop when you turn 18. You are not here to be like everyone else. You are here to be like Jesus. You are here to be like him. 1 John 4, 17 says, In this way love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. Now there's so much involved in what it means to be like him in this world. More than a sermon, more than even a, a series of sermons could begin to explicate but I'm just focusing on one aspect today. 
good deeds. St. Peter summed up Jesus' life. This is uh, Acts chapter 10. Summed up Jesus' life by saying, he went around doing good. Here Jesus tells us to let our light so shine that people see our good deeds. He expects us to do good deeds. And remember, God has prepared those good deeds for us. I think individually and as a church. He's prepared them for us to do, to find and do. And if God prepared good deeds for us to do, you can be sure he wants us to be prepared to do them. We'll be learning about that as this series goes on. That means that your life and mine should be characterized by good deeds, just as Jesus's was. The preacher ought to be able to say at your funeral, he, she, went around doing good. Now remember, good deeds are not an end in themselves. Don't start talking about getting into hell. You're preaching salvation by works. No, I'm not. Good deeds are not an end in themselves. They are not a down payment on a heavenly condo. They come out of a life that God placed in us by his doing. And the opportunities he's placed around us and we discover them as we learn to live from Jesus. Those deeds advertise the power and the goodness of God to family, to neighbors, to friends, even to enemies. We glorify God and enjoy him, not just forever, but right now. Learning while you're here is the most practical, down-to-earth thing you can do. And why are you here? Not to be like everyone else, you're here to be like Jesus. You're here to do the good deeds God has prepared for you to do. You're here to glorify your Father who is in heaven. To be a walking advertisement for God and his kingdom. All right, let's pray. God, we are bombarded with what we ought to be all the time. In conversations, in the media, we see what it looks like to be the right person. And what we see is not Jesus. Lord, deliver us from this false idea of what we should be. Show us why we're here so that we can get it right. For the name and sake of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together and we're going to.